podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Karen Ferry, who is a visiting scholar at GLD from the University of California. Karen is also part of GLD's steering committee. We talk about her latest research on how ethnic divisions shape voting behavior. Karen argues for a reorientation of how we think about ethnic voting, away from an exclusive focus on voters to one that links voter behavior to the supply side of candidates. Karen's research has recently been published in two GLD working papers. You can find more information about Karen and her research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Karen, thank you for joining us um, both today and also for joining us in Gothenburg. Uh, it's been great to have you here and unfortunately to have you now joining us by Skype because of coronavirus, but nevertheless, great to, great to have you with us. So Karen, of course, you're one of the foremost experts in elections and ethnic politics in Sub-Saharan Africa. And you've done a lot of work thinking about co-ethnicity and why people might vote for co-ethnics and what that might mean for elections. I'd like to start out, though, for those who don't know, just by asking you to describe what co-ethnicity is or define it for us. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks, Ellen. And um, thanks for chatting about this today. And thanks for having me in Gothenburg in spite of these weird circumstances. So co-ethnicity. Yeah, I usually think of it in terms of elections and voting, but it's more broad than that, I guess. And co-ethnicity is just a shared ethnic identity between individuals. So co-ethnics share common ethnic identity. Uh, when we apply that concept to elections and voting, we're often thinking about co-ethnicity between voters and um, candidates. So are they from the same ethnic group? It can be broader, or, or we could we can think of other ways of thinking about co-ethnicity. I, I think about it often in terms of candidates, shared ethnicity between voters and candidates, but some people think about it as a party-level attribute, not a candidate-level attribute. So, you know, uh, a party might be uh, considered uh, like the NPP in Ghana as an Ashanti party, that it has that sort of connotation. Um, so that's another way of thinking about co-ethnicity is at the party level. And when you say Ashanti party, then you're referring essentially to kind of tribal identities. Yeah. In Africa, we sometimes think of, of ethnicity as being a, a tribal thing. You know, ethnicity is an ascriptive identity at the broadest level. It's something that's inherited we think of it as inherited from our parents, and so it encompasses a wide range of potential identity types, and tribe is maybe one way of thinking about it. Um, Ethno-linguistic identity is another way of thinking about it. Would you include um, sort of sectarian identities if we were talking about, say, parts of the Middle East, or um, where religion t seems to be passed down more than it is a choice, or just other types of, of identity relationships in that? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a really interesting question. I don't think that there's one answer to it. I think it depends precisely on what you alluded to there about whether it is passed down. So it's the case that religion is something you're born into and you don't 
have much mobility out of it, you can't change it, it's something inherited, then yes, I, I think of it as as part of that same family of, of ethnic identities. And, you know, I think the, the person who's written the, the most on this and is really, has a lot to offer is Kenshin Chandra's work, really. And so in that sense, religion, yes, sectarian identities can be in that same family. But of course, there are other religious identities that, that are not like that, that are more by choice, where you can you can become a member of, of that religion or or leave that religion. Um, and, and in that sense, religion is sometimes like an ethnic identity and sometimes is not. So as a Middle East scholar, I would ask you, you know, are religious identities in the Middle East more like ethnic identities or are they more less descriptive? No, and in my view, most most of the time, or at, at least in a lot of places, they really are more like ethnic identities, right? So if I'm thinking about sectarianism in, in Lebanon, right, I don't think people have a lot of, in a sense, kind of choice over what sect they're in, even if <laughs> if you might want to say, okay, well, I can, you know, I can convert or I can become atheist, that it seems to be, seems to act much more stickily or sticky <laughs> than that. But I think that the key then is for us to think about ethnic identities and, and these kind of ascriptive identities as things that people can't escape, right? So you can't, you can't join into to one necessarily, at least not easily. Um, you can't escape one um, so easily. And so that then shapes how people uh, relate, in a sense, to politics and politicians. Um, so I'd like to hear, hear you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between ethnicity and uh, candidate selection or elections and kind of maybe even politics more generally? Yeah, I mean, uh, ethnicity often plays a, a very big role in politics, whether we like to acknowledge it or whether we don't like to acknowledge it. And, you know, the simplest way to see that is that people's behavior, their political behavior is often very correlated with their ethnic identity. So in elections, not everywhere, certainly, but in a lot of places, if you know someone's ethnicity, you can often predict quite closely how they will vote. You know, not always, but, but often you can predict how they will vote. That doesn't tell us about causality, though, right? And, um, you know, this sort of correlation isn't causation. So the fact that someone's ethnicity predicts how they're voting, their vote choice doesn't tell us why it's predicting that. Are they actually consciously taking ethnicity into account when they vote? Or is it uh, something else that's driving their voting behavior that is correlated with ethnicity, right? So I think there's been a lot of really interesting work uh, in the past, I don't know, 20 years or so or, or longer, really trying to unpack if we see this correlation between people's identity, how they vote, what, what drives that correlation? What is what is the nature of it? Is it just that people prefer co-ethnics, that they think co-ethnics are better, or that it's, it's sort of a identity-based politics of um, expression, expressing my identity as part of this group, or are there other types of, of motivations for it? And, you know, a lot of the, the work has been trying to get inside voters' heads, you know, what drives their behavior, what is the voter psychology of, of ethnicity, and um, some of that work, a common, uh, an argument that has intrigued a lot of people is really that ethnicity acts as sort of an informational shortcut, that voters are unsure how to vote, they're unsure what the best option is, and ethnicity is a piece of information that they can see, that, that they can perceive easily, and that predicts 
what a candidate's going to do when they get to office. So it's sort of a, it's a heuristic. It's a shortcut, just like partisanship might be in the United States or um, regional identity might be somewhere else. It's a, it's a piece of information that people can use. And so that's been a common argument about the role of ethnicity in, in politics. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like even within that argument, we have different mechanisms that can be at play, right? I mean, it might predict what a person will do once they're in office because they fear that I'm able to sanction them more if they don't, right? Kind of the findability or the sanctioning explanation, or that because uh, they feel somehow more obligated to help me because we're, you know, we sort of have a shared ethnicity and a set of obligations that go beyond even the elections are based on this. So there's a lot of different ways of unpacking, even if there's a heuristic, what that heuristic is essentially kind of acting, acting as. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think in African politics, we've been very quick to assume that that heuristic is based on distribution, that, um, that politics is sort of a divide the dollar game and, and your co-ethnic is more likely to distribute stuff to you than somebody else. But there are other mechanisms. You might just assume that your co-ethnic has a similar set of preferences over policies to you because you come from a similar place and you share similar values. Or as you say, it could be about sanctionability, that I feel like I can hold my co-ethnic more accountable. It might simply be a coordinating device. You know, how do I be part of a, of a majority? How do I find other like-minded voters? And ethnicity becomes kind of a focal point in voting. Yeah, there are a lot of different mechanisms. We, and I think that's kind of where the, the literature is right now, is beginning to unpack what is meant by ethnicity as a heuristic. And we have some work on that. <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully we'll be able to sort of uh, contribute to answering that question. But another part of, of your work has really thought about um, how kind of environmental factors might matter. And I don't mean environmental in the sense of kind of clear, clean air and clean water, but but really thinking about how different um, natures of elections or of you know, kind of societal differences might play a role in this. And I find some of your work that's thinking about when we have more or less ambiguous um, information about candidates, particularly sort of returning candidates, how that plays a role. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think you're referring to a paper that I wrote with Clark Gibson and James Long, where we argue that you know, we're trying to reconcile these sort of different approaches to voting in Africa that focus on either ethnic voting or performance voting. Um, and there's really a lot of evidence that voters do both. And, you know, the question is, when do they engage in sort of a more performance-oriented behavior where they're assessing, you know, what has the incumbent done? How well did they do it? Is it above a certain threshold? And then am I going to vote for them or not vote for them? The sort of accountability models. And we argue that these models kind of assume that um, it's easy to determine uh, to evaluate performance and that performance is sort of a straightforward thing. Uh, an incumbent has either done a good job or, done, or they've done a poor job. And a lot of the experiments on performance sort of set it up this way, where they have an unambiguously good or an unambiguously bad record, and, and voters are assessing that and voting on it. And it, it, we argue that performance records are actually usually ambiguous, that they, uh, incumbents are delivering on all sorts of different things, on cleaning up corruption and providing health care and uh, addressing pandemics and 
for example, and fighting inflation and um, fighting wars and providing security. And, and they, they, they're unlikely to do all the same, all good or all bad, right? They, they tend to have these mixed records. And when you have a mixed record, voters have to think about all of the different dimensions and try to figure out how to aggregate them. And that can be pretty tough. I mean, I know when I've been a voter in an election, a lot of times it's really hard to figure out whether the incumbent did well or did poorly. It's, it's not easy. Um, and our argument is that that's what brings the ethnic voter out in people, or, or let's think of it as let's, that, that brings the heuristic voter out in people, the people when the performance is just tough to evaluate when it's ambiguous that's when people fall back on shortcuts. And we show that in Kenya, where if in a, in a simple experiment where we presented voters with a mixed record or an all good record or an all bad record, that ethnic voting was really much stronger for the mixed record. When you gave people an unambiguously good record, they looked at the record and didn't care as much about co-ethnicity. Same thing for unambiguously bad, but with that mixed record, that's when people were just kind of not sure about it. And that's when they ended up using ethnicity as a, as a cue. So yeah, that's a sort of a broader informational context that, that people are in affects what they do, how they, whether they rely on ethnicity or not. And one of the things I think that's interesting about that paper is if you're thinking about Africa in any country where we think ethnicity is a particularly strong cue, Kenya would probably be one of those places, right? So seeing that that mechanism and that sort of the importance of ambiguity play out there, I think, is is really pretty striking. And it's a very interesting, I think, very interesting paper. It reminds me or, or brings me to a, a question about choice sets, though, right? So in in the ambiguity paper, you're predominantly looking in the Nairobi area, if I remember correctly. And that's a place where we might expect that people could have different, a choice of candidates that includes co-ethnics and non-co-ethnics. And it, you've done a lot of work thinking about and, and looking at choice set more broadly, right? Taking on this question of whether or not that's always an, an accurate assumption. So can you start by just giving us a sense of how widespread the assumption is in the literature itself and in our studies of these dynamics? Let me just say that the complexity or the ambiguity paper is not just in Nairobi. It was done in an exit poll. Yeah. It was targeted very, you know, it was because it was about a presidential candidate. It was focused on Luo and Kukuyu voters. And the reason why it was focused on Luo and Kukuyu voters is because those were the voters that actually did have strong co-ethnics in the election that we were studying, which was the 2013 Kenyan election, which is sort of getting to the, to the point that you were making, which is that in order to understand when voters choose co-ethnics, you have to put them in situations where they actually have a choice meaning where their choice set includes co-ethnics and non-co-ethnics. And having run several of these experiments, it made me very aware of the importance of this choice set because you can't run an experiment on co-ethnicity in a place where voters don't have a mixed choice set of co-ethnics and non-co-ethnics. And once you start looking around in places, a lot of, a lot of countries you realize that oh, actually, a lot of voters don't actually have that choice. They don't have a choice between a co-ethnic and a non-co-ethnic. And that really 
I kind of backed my way into thinking about choice sets and, you know, where do, where do they come from? And, and gosh, they, they're actually really important and we don't really think about them directly in this huge literature on co-ethnic voting. And yet they probably really matter. So I started thinking about the choice set more systematically and trying to, to measure it um, and thinking about ways to measure it at a, at a micro level, at a, at a voter level. Um, because it's one thing to say, oh, the supply side matters or the sort of macro side matters or structure matters, but it's another thing to try and bring that into an actual study of behavior at the micro level. And so that's some of the work that I've been doing lately, and I've been working with um, a series of exit polls that ask voters about about their choice in legislative elections, who they had voted for. And if you take that response and then you map it to the set of candidates each voters actually had, you can put the choice set around the voter, so to speak. That's what I've been working on this past year, and it's it's been pretty interesting. That's a paper that's available as a working paper on, on our website, and I think that it will be useful for, for listeners to to read it, but can also you give us a sense of the findings in that paper? Sure. I think one of the most interesting findings in the paper is that the mixed choice sets, which are really kind of the this choice between an, a co-ethnic and a non-co-ethnic candidate that animates a lot of the literature, is actually not as common as we think. In Kenya and Ghana and Uganda, the three cases that I look at, the uh, three elections, Ghana 2008, Kenya 2007, Uganda 2011, only about a third of voters had a mixed choice set. So the other two-thirds of voters across these countries either had all co-ethnics in their legislative choice set or they had not no co-ethnics in their legislative choice set. And of course, that's that was really astonishing to me when I realized that this literature is really focused on basically a third of the electorate and two third two thirds of the electorate is actually, you know, their choice is essentially made for them before they even get to the polling station. Because obviously, if I only have co-ethnics on my ballot, then I vote for a co-ethnic and it doesn't have anything really to do with with me. <laughs> And if I vote for a non-coethnic and I only have non-coethnics on my ballot, again, it doesn't really have much to do with me. I've, I've been, my choice in this regard, in this particular dimension is already made for me. Um, and so then I started thinking about that we've made so much progress, I think, in understanding voting by focusing narrow, narrowly on the micro foundations and the sort of voter psychology side of it, but we've been missing this much bigger, deeper picture about what drives voting behavior. Two sort of notes or reflections on that, right? I mean, one of them is that this is not necessarily even taking into account whether or not your co-ethnic is a strong candidate, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong with that, but your point earlier about why it made sense to look at presidential candidates in Kenya was that those are candidates who you could, both sides could have assumed that they had a chance of winning, right? Um, and here you're looking at whether or not you even have a, a co-ethnic, almost irregardless of whether they have a chance of winning. Is that correct, or are, are you looking at it slightly differently? No, you're, you're correct. That's the sort of first cut, is to just consider, it's sort of 
take it at face value what's on the ballot and count it up. Um, do they have a coeducated option? And so it's sort of the, the most basic sense of what a choice set is. Um, but the choice set concept can be elaborated on from there on out. And we can consider other dimensions like maybe we care about whether they have a viable candidate. There's all sorts of candidates that run in Kenyan elections that are, you know, some of these elections will have 13, 14 candidates in a single number plurality election. A lot of those are sort of vanity candidates or they're, no one really takes it seriously. So we can, we could amend the choice set concept to say, okay, we only care about main candidates. Of course, we have to define what that means. Even just at the nominal level of do you have a co-ethnic or not, only a third of these voters even have, are in that mixed set where they have at least one co-ethnic, however good or bad that candidate might be, or and at least one non-co-ethnic. And actually only two-thirds, in a sense, have a co-ethnic to vote for at all. Right. I mean, so there's there's two ways in which it's striking. One is the extent to which the literature has focused on a choice that only a third of the citizenry has. And then the second is it's ignored the fact that there's about a third out there that that can't even make the choice that we think that they're likely to make. Yeah. And that's really striking. I think the other thing that was striking is for those who who consider Ghana and Uganda and Kenya, we might expect that there'd be quite some differences across those cases. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this set of cases actually is is useful in terms of exploring these concepts and, and what you find? First of all, the cases have some important similarities um, in terms of their histories and the fact that they're multi-ethnic countries that don't have majority ethnic groups and they have similar electoral institutions, single member plurality rules combined with presidents and so on. But one dimension that they're different on, I think, is the salience of ethnicity or how specialists of these countries have characterized the salience of ethnicity. And I don't think that I'm going out on much of a limb to say that Kenya is generally seen as this sort of archetype of salient political ethnicity in, in Africa, that it's the, the most ethnicized, one of the most ethnicized cases. And ethnicity is salient in, in the other two cases, Ghana and Uganda, but, but a little bit less so. And there's a little bit more disagreement about it. And, and people would say, yes, it matters, but, but maybe not as much. So um, one of the things that, that's interesting about looking at choice set is that you can unpack those differences a little more. And, for example, with legislative elections, if we look at, if we ignore choice set and we just say what percentage of voters in legislative elections vote for co-ethnics, and I do this in the paper, Kenya really stands out as, you know, seven, around 78% of voters in, in legislative elections in Kenya vote for co-ethnics. In contrast, in, in Ghana, it's, it's much lower, like 39% of all Ghanaians in legislative elections vote for co-ethnics, and then Uganda is somewhere in the middle. And that kind of fits with our sort of previous characterization, right, that Kenya is this very ethnic case. But when we take out the voters that don't have a choice, the differences between the, the cases narrows a lot. Um, Kenya, for the voters that have a choice, around 74% of Kenyan voters that have a choice vote for their co-ethnics, so they do clearly prefer co-ethnics. But in Ghana, 61% 
of the voters that have a, a choice in the in the legislative election vote for their co-ethnic. So the difference between the cases suddenly is is a, a lot less stark. And, and what it forces us to realize is that some of the difference between Ghana and Kenya is really about the differences in the choice sets voters have. And then another piece of it is what voters do within the choice set that they have. Um, and I think that was really very interesting to me. Kenyans live in constituencies where Kenyan voters often only see co-ethnics on their ballot. That's the nature of constituencies in Kenya, which will not surprise any Kenyanists, but I think that fact needs to be brought into our understanding of voting behavior. In Ghana, uh, voters are much more likely to see non-co-ethnics in their collections at the legislative level, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the preferences of voters. It has more to do with the way constituencies are drawn and the history of migration and boundaries and all of this interesting stuff that usually is outside of the world of voting behavior. Which brings me to the question of how do we understand the choice sets that voters are given, right? So I think you make a very compelling case that if once we take into account what choices voters have, then we have a, a very different picture than when we ignore that, right? Um, so how do we think about choice set supply, if you will? Good question, and something that I've been writing a lot about lately. You know, the origin of the choice set, where does it come from? And in a most proximate sense, it's very, very, very strongly a function of demographics. So voters that are part of large groups have co-ethnics in their choice set. Voters that are part of small groups don't. So it's a very powerful predictor of choice set itself. Um, if you know the size of a person's group, you'll have a very strong sense of the nature of, the, of their choice set. And these mixed choice sets are really the domain of voters in medium-sized groups. Voters in large groups have all co-ethnics, voters in small groups have no co-ethnics, and voters in the middle have this mixed set. But that, of course, then begs the question of why does demographics, why does it matter so much? Um, and that's kind of what I'm thinking a lot about now. And politicians and sort of local elites that control the, the nomination process in constituencies. And first of all, what are their assumptions about what voters want? So they're putting, uh, they're forming ballots based on their beliefs about about voters, and of course those beliefs could be right or wrong, but that's part of it. But there are other mechanisms. It could be that the the selectorate in a local area, if you will, is is dominated by one ethnicity, where that ethnicity is large, and the selectorate wants to make sure they have co-ethnics in power. And so it may not have much to do about what they think about the voters and more about keeping the club closed, if, if you will. So there are, you know, there are different mechanisms, I think, at the candidate selection level that translate group size into choice sets. And what focusing on choice sets forces us to do is think through that candidate supply mechanism or process as part of the story about voting behavior, that that, that, that side matters also. And it's great and it's very exciting right now that there are a number of new studies and sort of a blossoming um, literature on the supply side in African politics of looking at these selectorates and a number of uh, young younger scholars really that are kind of 
working on that. And what I'm trying to, what I, what I think choice set does is it says we, we need to think about the demand side and the supply side together, you know, that, that those supply side arguments should be brought into our understanding of voting behavior. Nice way of sort of bringing those two sides together, right? And, and I think also in some ways clarifying the importance of the quest for mechanisms on the supply side in the same way that traditionally they had been thought of on the, on the demand side, right? Not to say that they're the exact same mechanisms at work, right? But to say that we need to, to think as much about those as we do on the demand side. Yeah, this is really a call for theory. It's a call for theorizing. And I, I don't actually think it is the same set of mechanisms. On the demand side, it's voter psychology. And, and this side, it's really much more about understanding those, those local elites and also national elites and how the local and national elites interact together. You know, there's a whole system just sort of rich for, rich for theorizing. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Uh, it brings me to a, a final question, which goes a bit beyond elections and voting in, in sub-Saharan Africa. But, you know, as you're sort of thinking about this, in other, what other ways do you see the choice set to be sort of applicable? Or what other ways in which you think that we can benefit from having a mind frame that's around cho- choice set? Yeah, I think the concept is, is very general. And, you know, when we're thinking about all sorts of different types of behavior, we have a tendency probably going back to the enlightenment of thinking about individual choice and thinking about choices. And that is important. It's important to understand choices and how individuals make those choices. But it's also really, really important that we never forget the choice set and the set of choices that they have. And we sometimes do that. And so when we're thinking about behaviors like eating and whether people eat healthy food or not, what choices do they make about what foods to eat? We have to think about what options they have in front of them, right? And, and you, can't, you can't leave that out of the story. Or if we're thinking about, you know, why do people not pursue education? Um, why do they choose not to go to college? Of course, we have to think not just about their preferences, but about the options that were in front of them. And even living in Sweden this year, I've been thinking a lot about... Um, ecologically friendly behavior of people making ecologically sound decisions for the environment and how the context that you find yourself in shapes that so much. So, you know, it might be much better for the environment if we ride our bikes to work instead of drive. But if you live in a place where riding your bike to work is taking your life into your hands, the way it sometimes feels in Southern California, where I'm from, of course, I don't perceive riding my bike to be a real option. And so, of course, I drive my car. And so I think thinking through choice set, you know, none of these are new observations necessarily, but choice set offers a, a sort of a crystallization or a way of thinking about them that puts it at the voter level and helps us unify the sort of supply and demand and structure and behavior sides of things. Excellent. Thank you so much, both, like I said, both for being here, but also for for doing some really, really interesting work and sharing it with us. Is there anything else that you want us to know? Any other thoughts? No, I just uh, thank you once again, Ellen, for having me. Have a nice day. 